drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. This is Season 2, Episode 26 of Drive-By Cinema. I'm Rick, and here's your co-host, Paul. Wow, we're exactly halfway through through Season 2. What would seem to be, I don't know, a boat ride into, into the depths of hell. We've done it last year. It's repeating itself, Richard. I think we're going back to the traditional route to Drive-By Cinema by watching the, the movies that we've watching the next couple of episodes. Yes! A welcome return to... Sci-fi? Sci-fi. Made-for-streaming sci-fi. Yes. A category which barely existed, you know, five years ago. Now, do we have any corrections? I don't, what did we talk about last week? I've, I've kind of... I have no brain today. Last week we talked about A Knight's Tale and the very oh. poor level of social mobility... That means that you have to be born to certain kinds of people if you want to make a success for yourself. Ah, yeah. Now, now, following this, I went back and did a little bit of social history research on, on things like Wikipedia and stuff like that uh, in order to find out how poor poor people were. And they were very poor, right. indeed. So, yes. like, labourers, this was the 14th century, so Chaucer's time, sort of... Uh, I'm not sure if serfdom was extending or retracting. Compared to Anglo-Saxon times, though, there were more serfs than there were like 500 years before. Anyway, whatever. So, yeah. So the poor were very poor, you know. Uh, like, people who were earning wages and weren't serfs tied to a, a, a manor and a lord. Like, you know, I don't know, whatever kind of job. Uh, would be earning, like, not even a pound a year kind of thing. So, pretty darn poor. Crikey. Pound a year? How do you save up on that? Well, and then, of course, in all these sources, they said, well, actually, you know, what does that mean in today's money? Well, it doesn't mean anything because there are no colour TVs, etc. But given what you could do, like a horse and cart back then would have cost that much. But in terms of value, today's value is probably worth two grand, isn't it? Imagine there are no cars today. You'd probably pay two grand to go on a horse and cart instead of a bicycle. So they, they kind of did this kind of umming and ahhing where they went between the figures then and the figures now to get some sort of sense of what the money was worth and what it could get you. And it equated to, you know, GDP per person for the poor people of about, you know, a thousand pounds a year in today's money. So a multiplier of about a thousand. So they've, I see. So pretty darn poor, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, there are people who live on less than a dollar a day. Ah, but wait, so this is the point where you can't really... Compare. Apples and oranges, yeah, because, like, like just just a nice shirt would be, like, two years' wages for them. Yeah. Whereas bread was pretty much, like, you know, you could buy... A loaf of bread would be... Of that, a thousand pounds would be, like, 50 pence or a pound. So you could buy... With that money, you can buy at least two or three loaves a day, kind of thing. Does that make sense? This is what the historians, the people, the people that are into this kind of history of currency and whatnot, uh, and history of value, is are saying is like it's just really hard to make any kind of meaningful comparison. Do you know there's a way of comparing world economies, not through exchange rates as such, but the Big Mac, through the Big Mac? Yeah, you've heard of this, yeah, the Big Mac index. So it's the what is the price of a Big Mac in various different countries? Yes. So that's the kind of thing they do here is they kind of they look at the raw figures and they squeeze it through a PPP indicator. And, kind of like, and they see like whether they could afford a Big Mac, a 14th century Big Mac kind of thing. Well, the reason I was doing this is because when he went to visit his dad, who was very, very poor and blind, like yes. his dad was living in quite a nice little thatched house, wasn't it? In in London, pretty much in central London, and a thousand pounds a year, and the price of timber. Timber was expensive back then. Back then, to the extent that people didn't have front doors, they just draped some cloth instead. Good timber was really hard to come by. I don't think you'd be living there, to be honest with you. Not realistic, really, was it? Yeah. So there we go. But I mean, he was living in London, so he probably could have popped along to McDonald's, couldn't he? The other thing I was thinking about was, uh, like, do you know the overhang, the overhang second first floor on. Houses from the era and onwards, the balcony. No, like they build up and out onto to cover the like to 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 build into the street. So the second, the first story will protrude over 
the walkway or the alleyway below. Does that make sense? Okay, like an inverted pyramid or something. Yeah. Now, usually the reason for that is because of tax. So you were taxed by your square meterage, but only on the ground floor. But if you think about it, there's also a reason. If you're laying, if you're laying joists, yeah, and yeah. all the weight, all the weight is inside the walls. Inside the walls. Whereas ah. if you have two walls, then yeah. you're counterbalancing the tension and the compression that results from downward forces on either side of the two the two uprights. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It does. It takes a so lot... There's a practical t- architectural reason. There's a practical ar- architectural reason of, of forces and moments that uh, that justifies it also, which I think was probably unconsciously realised. But there we go. Hmm. Anyway, so those are my thoughts, and my thoughts only extend that far. Whereas I'm sure, Richard, you're going to have some qualifying and correcting to do. Get out your whip. No, well, last episode, if you remember, Paul, I had been dealing with an earworm oh, from I'm sorry. a nineteen eighty two pop record yeah. by The Beat, if you recall. I should just say, by the way, the way that earworm <laughs> came about, I think, I, I didn't hear it anywhere. It just came through my memory. You know, it just like appeared. I, I was remembering it. Yeah. You know, not from 1982. I mean, I've heard it many times since then, I'm sure, but uh, I just found it in my head. I didn't listen to it or hear it on the radio. So that's what was interesting about it to me. Anyway, I did say at the end of that rant about that earworm that I would explain how. I don't I... think it was a rant. I think it was a. Fireside chat, Richard. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I was uh, I was quite receptive to earworm earworm lecture. So I did say that I would continue the story this week and explain what I did to to get rid of the earworm. Well, how would you get rid of an earworm, Paul? Let me just say, uh, Richard has with great gusto started off a drive by cinema podcast. Uh, drive by cinema. I'm sorry, playlist. I don't know if this is in relation to his earworms or not. A Spotify playlist. Well, they are on there, yes. Then I could have added some music that he didn't like, and so now we've stopped doing it together. He's just his. We uh, haven't stopped doing it, Paul. And, and you, you, <laughs> you, you tried to add some music, that, and then you said failed. immediately, oh, that's not very good. I don't like it. Take it off. Yeah, true. I'm not very discriminating when it comes to music. I like I like it all, really. Anyway, you say, how would you stop an earworm? How would you get rid of an earworm? Yes. The usual answer is to play it to death. I mean, well, that, it's certainly I certainly did that. Yes, yeah, I did play it over to no avail. again, but it it wasn't really working so well. What I ended up doing was finding another song to displace it. Wow! And it's another song with a bit of a story, and another song where the lyrics are meaningful. So I was quite excited by it. Not Lloyd Cole and the commotion. It was a lost weekend in Amsterdam. No, what does that mean? I don't know. Then you played me. He played me that one about a road trip in the UK going to Liverpool and back. Is that the one you were talking about? No, you mean driving, driving, driving away from away home. from home. And I didn't actually realise. I never actually listened to the lyrics, but it's actually. A road trip song about essentially a 30-mile trip from Liverpool to Manchester, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's hardly tumbleweed out west, is it? It's, the price, really, of a, it's yeah. the price of a five-pence phone call back then. It, <laughs> it's difficult to get properly lost in the United Kingdom, isn't it? It is. Yeah. You're never more than 70 miles away from the coast. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's as far away from the sea as you can get in the United Kingdom. Think on, on that if the next mega tsunami comes. So, so, Rich, go on. Yes. So, I, I presumably found this because if you go on YouTube and you're looking for, like, vintage 80s songs or performances by a particular band or whatever, you end up getting linked to other things. And I got linked to another sort of song, other performances. But what I want to do is go back now to 1981, I suppose that's the year before, mm-hmm. and a young, up-and-coming, all-girl punk band from the West Coast, uh, well, they, they, they have a hit, certainly in the US, maybe less so over here. 
This is the Go-Go's, fronted course, by Belinda yeah. Carlisle. Belinda. They were wild rockers, you know. And groundbreaking, you know, an all-girl proper punk band. Could play them, well, they could play them, their instruments as much as punk required, yeah. Exactly. No, I mean, they were bona fide, you know, rockers, as it were. And, by the way, recently, I think it was only a couple of years ago, 2016, they were inducted into the um, Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. And performed on, you know, they're still doing the stuff. Anyway, stop press. I, I much prefer Tiffany, but anyway, carry on. I thought we were alone now. Yes. Uh, so the Go Go's. So in 1981, they had a hit with a song, and the origin of that song is really interesting. The song is called "Our Lips Are Sealed." And at this point, I am going to ask if you've heard of it, and you're going to say no. I have not. So again, I'm going to have to play it to you, aren't I? Oh, that was quick by the magic of modern internet medicine. I think I've seen this video before. Yeah, well, it's a classic, right? Okay, so uh, I've seen this video before. It's quite famous because I think they got arrested for making the video. They didn't get arrested, no. Or something like what, that. I think they were managed by the same manager that managed the police. Probably, yeah. Yeah. And I think this video was made with some leftover budget from a police video. That makes sense, yeah. And I don't think they were arrested. In fact, I think they tried to get arrested, but uh, the LA police weren't interested. They do end up splashing around in a public fountain at one point. Oh, it could have been an episode of Columbo I'm getting mixed up with. <laughs> no, it was an episode of Columbo. Oh, no, California Highway Patrol. I've just been watching it, and I've also watched that recently. About I watched a documentary about 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 uh, about Belinda Carlisle, and I'm getting it mixed up in my fuddy duddy old mind. Yeah, right. but it's, it, it's the... a beautiful video. Can, can I just interrupt? Are you up to the part of the video where the girl in the green dress is singing in the car? Yeah. So that is the guitarist Jane Weedlin. Yes, and she's important for the history of this song. Before they released the single, presumably. 1980 or early 81, I'm not sure. The Go-Go's were touring in the UK. And they were the support act for the two-tone band, which I think is the other link to last week's song. They were touring with the specials, fronted by Terry Hall. They were going around UK venues and seaside towns and stuff like that. Now, Terry Hall had a girlfriend at the time. But the rumour is that Jane Weedlin, the girl in the green dress in the video... She mm-hmm. had an affair with Terry Hall while they were on the it tour. It happens. The Go-Go's came back to the US, came back to LA. Terry Hall wrote the lyrics to this song. Wow. Which are all really about like people judging them. You know, It's all about, our lips are sealed. It's all about not telling people about the affair. Wow. Well, don't it's sing about, about it then. There's a weapon that we must use in our defence, silence. Oh, you know, oh, stuff like that. Oh, oh, oh. It, it, it doesn't matter what they say. Uh, you know, makes no difference in any way. Hey, jealous games people play, etc. It's all about people judging them for their affair and, you know, people talking around their back and stuff like that. Can I just say, the video itself is a riotous, joyous celebration of that that nascent female kind of liberated, liberated power that I think Banana Rama did really well. You know, and people say, oh, Banana Rama, naff, brainless. Not necessarily, I don't think, you know. Same for the Go-Go's, you know. Uh, quite a lot of thought has gone into their image, I think. Uh, but at the same time, it feels really spontaneous, the video. And the music, I know why you like it. It's like all these earworm songs that you like, Richard. It's kind of very evocative. Very, and, very. Uh, and th- So I think this is Jane Weedlin's music put to Terry Hall's uh, lyrics. Okay, so, so far so good. So the next thing, the next bit in the story is a couple of years later, 1983, Terry Hall, I think he's left, I think he's left um, the, the specials. Yeah. He's formed well, a new band. Yeah. He's formed a new band with some of the specials and some other musicians called Funboy 3. That's right, yeah. He releases his version of the same song. Which again, you need to see, and I think there's a something of a test here. So anyway, here, here's here's the original video for, for Fun Boys Freeze version of the same song. Richard, how long did you disappear, disappear down the rabbit hole for this? I like a week, at least a week. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
Well, if you think it's time productive, it's better, then, then, then you go for it. <laughs> I couldn't not do it. Okay. Well, that's fun by three. <laughs> you know, all kinds of weird. Like, I, I almost feel like he's stuck between being a new romantic and Robert Smith somehow in his, in his appearance, you know. He's got a nice line and guy liner going on there, doesn't yes. he? Yes, yeah. What I love about these two songs, these two videos, first of all, the songs are wildly different in style. Yes. It, the Go-Go's are so happy about it all and so loving life. They're Really, they're, they're talking about this, this whole thing as like a poke in the eye, you know, our lips are sealed, you know. This is very dark. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, Birmingham only produces dark music, you know. <laughs> Like, all the goth, essentially. A lot of goth came from Birmingham, didn't it, you know? Uh, I mean, the happiest Birmingham ever got was Duran Duran, which is always highly atmospheric stuff, isn't it? So, so yeah, I mean... The other thing about this is the videos are so 80s, both of them, but in both different of them, ways. Yeah, yeah. So I think you could probably tell a lot about someone by which of these two songs they prefer. <laughs> you know, if you had to choose one... <laughs> I, I definitely choose the Go Girls, although I do actually like the Fun Boy Three version. I'm genu- gen- genuinely quite a big fan of music from that year or two. Haircut One Hundred, Fun Boy Three, all that yeah, kind of stuff. Exactly. Nick Kershaw. I love it. I love it all. Yeah, I, but I still go for the Go Girls. I think one of the great things about this this and this journey is reading all the YouTube comments from people who are so butthurt and saying, this is Belinda Carlisle's song. <laughs> uh, wrong on many counts. <laughs> so did he actually write the music and the lyrics or just the lyrics? Well, he wrote the lyrics. The question... It sounds quite gogoy though, doesn't it, the music? I'm not, you know, a musical enough kind of person to understand what relationship that second version has to the first one. I mean, it sounds quite different to me. But, I mean, oh, no, I think it's still the, the same song. The structure is the same, clearly. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there's a whole lot that's quite different. Well, 27 people with giant sort of new romantic poems <laughs> playing <laughs> playing violins and cellos in the background. So so that might change something, okay? So the interesting thing is that the Go-Go's song didn't really chart in the UK. It did very well in the, in the States, became yeah. one of their big hits. Whereas here, Fanboy 3's, Fanboy 3's version did chart really highly. Did it? Uh, so, so in the UK, that's our version of the song. And in the US, the Go-Go's version wow. dominates. For those now, that can't hear it... Oh, sorry. For those that can't hear it, like the Fanboy 3 version, if I have to make a comparison, it's like a very sanitised version of Echo and the Bunny Men meets The Cure. <laughs> yes. Meets Haircut 100 <laughs> kind of stuff. It's quite, It's quite weird. With some vague scarish bum bums thrown in there. Well, that's that's the specials uh, influence, isn't it? And, yeah. and again, again, another beautifully mixed band with you know both gender and race all represented. It's brummaging for you, isn't it? Here's another interesting fact to bring us back to movies. Jane Wheedlin, the girl who wrote the, the music, the guitarist in the Go Go's, perhaps more famous to some, maybe. As Joan of Arc in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. What? Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, just let me say, okay, you're saying, how do you kill an earworm? Now, I was hmm. looking at something completely unrelated, but it kind of triggered, triggered a thought here. Was uh, Some people's relation to buying uh, designer goods, it's like the rich don't actually really buy that much Gucci and Louis Vuitton. There's essentially, it's people with low esteem who can nearly afford it but can't quite afford it. And that they, they exploit you that price-value equation where increasing the price increases the supposed value of the product. This has got nothing to do with earworms. However, what they were saying was <laughs> that the reason we can't shake that price-value equation is because of the emotional attachments uh, and the idea of perfect happiness that we attach to our toys in childhood. Uh-huh. So it's like we have a Proustian flashback every time. Every time we have a translational Proustian flashback. Every time you know we go, if, if you're that kind of person that goes into a designer shop to buy that Louis Vuitton, it's kind of you're, you're flashing back to the emotional comfort and sense of well-being you had when you 
were attached to that perfect toy backing child was supposed. And I thought that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable supposition. So I think in the same way, you've got to kill not the earworm, but that perfect feeling that is being echoed by the earworm. If it's a song that is an earworm because it's been there before, like these have. And I do notice with you, Richard, I think there's like, there's almost an emotional tone to these songs that, that you that you that you really attach to and that is they're kind of like they're quite sort of soaring aren't they and they're quite they're quite big kind of i can't really express the express it clearly oh my god i'm i'm vulnerable i'm being psychoanalyzed by my no i don't i think we're all i think we're all attached to things i was just you know that thought brought me to this which is to say i think you have to kill the attachment not the song yeah, I, I identify I think that Proustian, to it over and over again. Identify that Proustian moment. Why you know there must have been a special moment for me. You know, like Pride in the Name of Love by U two. I actually know the moments in my life that uh. make me again. It's got a quite kind of big story song, like the sort of songs that you like here. It's got it's got some big moments in it, hasn't it? But you know, yes, it's, yeah. it's it's certainly to do with a teenage disco, and also a song by King at this, around oh, about the same time. My God, King. Oh, yeah, they, they were big on top of the pops. They were one to shop you. I can't remember. Well. They had the like coloured Dot Martens when Dot Martens weren't even fashionable anymore. Uh, sprayed. <laughs> yeah. No, they sprayed. They sprayed the Dot Martens fluorescent. But those two songs were, in particular, to do with one school disco. Well, movie connections aside, and what were you saying, Paul? About oh yeah, evocative Proustian flashbacks. Evoc- Find the flashback. Go back there. Kill the memory, rather than the. Oh, it's like. It's like PTSD, isn't it? You need to re-expose yeah. yourself. But what I'm saying is, if you look at all your earworm songs, Richard, they're all kind of quite sorry. They're all quite big, kind of quite... I don't know. There's there's a similarity to them all in some in some thematic level that I think you need to... Well, they're all going on the playlist. The oh. Spotify playlist, we, which we will publish, and we can exclusively announce here <laughs> on Drive-By Cinema. Let's return to the topic of movies after this musical interlude. Brought on in no small part by an Ocado delivery. <laughs> Paul. This week we decided to watch Netflix exclusive Morgan. Well, I know it wasn't Netflix exclusive, was it? It was... Oh, it was available on Google and so on, wasn't it? Right, well, I've got several things to say. 2016, Morgan, UK, US production. First thing to notice is the producer is Ridley Scott. Ah, that's interesting. You can see his influence somewhat in there. But it was directed by Luke Scott. I'm going to take it that's his son. Oh, my gosh. Probably is, isn't it? Yeah. You see, I never knew Hollywood royalty. I mean, Hollywood royalty extends. The distance extended acting, but I never knew it extended in terms of directing. He also directed The Martian, which was another of our of our movies, Paul. Stop it right now. Yeah. Luke Scott. Is he, yeah. is he some sort of relation to Ridley, do you think, or not? Yes, he is the son of oh, Ridley Scott. Gosh. Okay. So it, it was budgeted at eight million, which is neither small nor big, but only made eight point eight at the box office, so we can determine it to be a flop. Yeah. I I mean I was looking forward to this because it's been a while since we did hard sci fi. It's been a while since we did AI sci-fi. Uh, and so, like, the blurb for this kind of got me got me going, got me waters going. Uh, I was ready to sit down and enjoy an expedition into the frontiers and the outliers, outlying territories of, of, of where artificial intelligence could take us as a species. But that's not where this film took us, Richard, is it? Let's be honest. <laughs> Also, I mentioned last week that it stars Anya Taylor-Joy, and I was struggling to remember what, what, what she was in. I said something about the White Queen, but mm. it's actually The Queen's Gambit, the very popular Netflix series ah. about a chess-playing grandmaster um, that, that she played. Okay. And it's been in the news recently, because I think, I think Netflix, are, someone's trying to sue them. For the depiction in this 
TV series? I'm not sure. But I, I thought it was fictional, maybe based on a true story. But Wow. Now, this has got quite a big cast, because unusually for these kind of films, it isn't like a cast of two. <laughs> There's dozens of people in this. And they're all Most fucking scientists. scientists. Yeah. There's one bloke who's a cook who's called Skip. Oh, he's the cook, is he? Ah. Yeah. I, I just assumed he was another scientist. No. I, I, no, he's know. actually just a cook. Yeah. So they only need one kind of domestic help in the installation. That's right. And everyone else is doing some kind of science. Yeah, that. They're described as scientists, but they don't really behave as scientists, do they? So <laughs> one of my biggest problems with this film is the depiction of science. In terms really of what? In terms of, of ethics? Yeah, there's no ethical dimension at all to any of these people. Too many it? scientists spoil the ethical clearance, yeah. And the second problem with it all, which I think you've kind of alluded to, is that this is not really about AI and robots, as far as I can tell, because... The way that they, and this is like right up in the opening bits of the movie, as far as I can see, the way that they create the sort of main protagonist or antagonist for the film, the the robot in inverted commas, is they take a sort of human genes and a human child, I think, and they inject nanites into it, and that in some way changes them. Not so much that you couldn't, you wouldn't think they were human if you looked at them. But apparently they're now some kind of a robot. They treat they treat them as a robot, as a machine. From that point, humanoid on. is what they call them. Yeah. But it's actually a human with nanites in them, right? It's not a mm-hmm. robot. So the whole premise of the movie for me is completely flawed because they don't make a robot. They just they take a human and modify them. The way they term it is synthetic DNA. So now the real protagonist, of course, is the character we follow through the movie, Lee Weathers. L- Lee Weathers, yes, played by Kate Mara, who you, you may know, Paul. Am I supposed to? Well, she was in The Martian, <laughs> which was one of the movies that we watched earlier <laughs> in season one. Uh, she was also in House of Cards, the American remake of the British TV series called House of Cards, the one with Kevin Spacey in it before Kevin Spacey was oh my gosh cancelled. Well, she's a risk management specialist, which is to say, she's kind of like a terminator or an enforcer. Yeah, would that be fair to say? Yes, interesting use of the word terminator there, Paul. Yes, but she's some kind of corporate troubleshooter, as she seems to be. And she's tasked to go to this facility, owned by the corporation she works for, by her boss, who is obviously Brian Cox on the telephone, to name drop another big star in this film. This so, organisation is called SynthX. It is, yes. And what they've done, these scientists, these they fucked up. That's massive, what they've done. Well, they've what they've discovered is they've using huge amounts of resource and a great deal of scientific acumen. They have managed to discover how you create a moody teenager more quickly <laughs> than normal. Because <laughs> uh, I mean, the the robot person that they've got grows up really fast. It's like. I think it's five years old when Lee Weathers arrives at the facility. And we see straight away, actually, it's a cold open onto a scene which is taken through CCTV, looking at a sort of kitchen table type arrangement, where a girl sitting down in a hoodie suddenly jumps up and stabs a woman she was chatting to quite nicely up until that point in the eye yep. uh, with with a knife. We later found out that before then she just killed a deer into forest also. So that's why she's behind the glass when when Lee comes to visit. Is our... Oh, yeah, but hold on. She, she killed a deer in the forest, but it wasn't like she was a hunter. It wasn't like she went out with a bow. She she found a deer that had actually fallen onto a bit of spiky branch and had punctured its torso. And she yeah. put it out of its misery, really, by breaking its neck, as you do. You know, just, you know that thing in the movies where you grab the head of somebody or something and you just twist it. And, and it snaps their neck and they die immediately. So Lee's been brought in to evaluate this. And uh, I think it's Amy, one of, the, one of the many, 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 many scientists and female scientists, well done for balance there, says, I know you're not what you say you are. I know it's a euphemistic term, 
your job, your job title, you are an assassin. So, like, they kind of know that maybe there's not going to be a good result for the AI humanoid stabbing people and killing killing wildlife. However, she is an improvement on one earlier iteration. I took a few screenshots and they said, but it was plagued by mental issues in its development. And we get some sort of little exposition of, you know, some weird shaped fetus coming out, coming out of whatever development pod and being being terminated. And you took screenshots of that, did you? Yes. Now, because okay. that was because, well, I wanted, That's I didn't want, I was, I was trying to discover, <laughs> could I take notes in a lazy way? And it's not very effective. <laughs> because all you get is the, the Netflix just cuts out the image and all you get is the subtitles. However, so then <laughs> we get the reason why Morgan has been developed. And that is to start with a more, now this is the phrase, emotionally cognitive specimen. I don't know what emotionally cognitive is, but that's what they developed in Morgan. That's Dr. Amy Menzer. She's the behaviourist, played uh-huh. by Rose Leslie, who is a Game of Thrones alumni. There's a lot of Game of Thrones actors in, in this film. So it's a whole name drop fest, this thing, isn't it, really? Oh, massive, yeah. Uh, when she was on the phone to Brian Cox at the beginning, right. we're talking about the L9 prototype, which is what, what we're talking about here. But the guy says something about a Dr. Ben Shapiro coming to the facility. Did you catch that? <laughs> no. No, I didn't. The, interestingly, later, Dr. <laughs> Shapiro turns out to be Alex Shapiro or something. He yes. changed his name. Yes. Alan, uh, Alan, Alan Shapiro. He's Alan the guy. Shapiro, yeah. Because, I mean, he's the guy that's been brought in to do some sort of psychological evaluation. I think on, on Lee's request, is that right? Yeah, played by Paul Giamatti. I don't know about Lee's request. Maybe the corporation, SynthX, maybe. But I think he does a good job. Okay, I think uh, this, his character, although it is quite hammy in his final interview with with the subject, with the humanoid subject, uh, Morgan. I mean, I think he did a good job. I think he did a relatively good job. Really? You think that's good science? Because really what he actually did was he sat down with the L9 robot. And tormented her, yeah. Tormented her until she snapped, and then he got killed. Him. Yeah, yeah. Plot spoiler. So yeah. So I, at this point, I was thinking it is a bit ex machina meets Silence of the Lambs. I mean, what what was his thinking behind that experiment? There, what was his control sort of group? Oh, you know? I don't know. I've been met from. <laughs> I've been met with my my limitations of the pre- my understanding of the scientific method with my car. Like, about two weeks ago, it just started sputtering, really, as I was getting onto the motorway. And I couldn't get beyond 30 or 40 miles an hour. Anyway, so I put some oil in. That usually works. It didn't work. And then uh, I went down Halfords and I bought catalytic kind of... The thing you put in your petrol, yeah, catalytic catalytic cleaner. Oh, no, poor. Wait, I'll explain why I didn't go to the garage, because they're all fully booked up for four weeks. So I had to do something. I had to drive it. So catalytic converter cleaner... It's, uh, this is like car homeopathy, Paul. I know. Wait a minute. It's spark plug cleaner, <laughs> uh, total engine clean cleaner, uh, and another cleaner. And I put all four in, which you're not supposed to. I put them all in, the, in, in, in with the fuel as I filled it up. And it has got a lot better, but I don't know which of the four has improved it, you see. Because I didn't. Well, you just need to now I too many extraneous variables. Time, well, now I need to buy three of them and use them, or two of them, or one of them, and, and sort of do combinations like that. I mean, maybe you can get some crystals put round your car interior. But you say it's nonsense, but it's really worked. My fuel economy <laughs> was down to 12 miles a gallon when it was its most sputtery worst. And now I'm up to at least 45 miles a, miles a gallon. So. I think probably you were out of blinker fluid, Paul. If you check your blinker fluid level. <laughs> That's probably anyway. what it is. So I, I, I want take your point. Car. I take your I point. A car. I want to a car with a dream catcher hanging on the, the mirror. <laughs> He's not going to give it <laughs> Look, it has improved, but I don't know if maybe a bit of bit of pooey stuff has managed to work its way out through the catalytic converter or not. I'm not sure what's happened, but something's happened. It's got a lot better. Uh, and it's only two weeks now until my garage appointment. So, but, right. So, I, I to your point, yeah, I mean, it's a bad presentation of science, but maybe they're just supposed to be bad scientists. You don't think so? Well, it's a lot of bad scientists to gather together in one facility. It is a lot of must... bad scientists to gather together, yeah. Okay. But what I meant was, I thought, like, because there isn't a lot of intense acting. I think, you know, uh, the character on the Shapiro is, it's the only time we get menace or any heightened 
tension, I think, in the entire movie. Although I th- yeah. it is quite hackneyed the way he does provoke and torment the subject. So, so yeah. The scientist who got stabbed in the eye is played by Jennifer Jason Lee. And she plays Kathy, Kathy Grief. Dr. Kathy, yeah. We've got uh, Toby Jones playing Dr. Simon Ziegler. Oh, that's who's played Simon. Yeah, from the Barbarian Sound Studio film. I knew it was, I knew it was him, but I didn't know the name of the character he played, so I've got that the wrong way around. Okay. Dr. Simon so that's who, that's who Simon is. You've also got Chris Sullivan, Dr. Darren Finch, and he's shacked up with another of the scientists. Um, played, but she's not on the list. Oh, yeah, played by Vinette Robinson. That's Dr. Brenda Finch, isn't it? Oh, they're married. Yeah, I got really confused towards the end of the movie about Brenda and what Brenda was doing in the movie, to be honest with you. Well, what all of the scientists are doing in the movie. I mean, there's not, plenty of them here. It's not really we, obvious why they're there. There's the boss, who is Dr. Lui... I should, that should be Liu, but it's spelt wrong. Liu Cheng. Liu Cheng, okay. And there's two Michelle, awful yo. moments where we've got, you know, uh, white presenting actors trying to speak Chinese. And oh, is it how, many, I mean, how much that. does it cost for a voice coach? Do you know what I mean? Just really? to say, hey, this is comprehensible. It's utterly incomprehensible Chinese <laughs> that uh, our supposedly super intelligent humanoid speaks. But also uh, Lee comes in to prove that she's no pushover. Uh, and when she comes in, she speaks Chinese to, to the Chinese boss. Yeah, but uh, it's just it's just not Chinese. You know, it's it's the words, but it doesn't make any sense, and it's completely mispronounced. Because tonally, it's wrong. Uh, totally, yeah. it's, it, well, it doesn't matter. This, I mean, totally wrong is bad, but it's not even there. You know, it's not even the right pronunciation of the, of the consonants of vowels. So, so presumably, yeah. Michelle Yeoh's Chinese is perfectly acceptable, is it? When she's speaking, well, it's a bit flat, but, a bit Americanized, kind of. Yeah. Although I think, well, she's a Hong Konger, isn't she, originally, I think. I think so, yeah. Born in Guangzhou, moved to Hong Kong at an early age, so she won't really speak uh, Mandarin. But yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was okay, it's like Hong Kong to speak it, kind of thing. There is a YouTube channel, actually, I've been watching, where a Chinese sort of uh, language teacher does exactly what you've just done. She goes through all, you know, Western films where they purport speak to speak Chinese, Chinese yeah. and checks out how good they are. It's quite funny. That's quite good, actually. Yeah, but it's—I mean, it's something like just don't put it in if you're not going to get them to say it right. You know, it, the way they speak Chinese is worse than the way that Jackie Chan speaks English. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and as Jackie admits, his English is pretty fucking bad. You know, so yeah, but you can at least understand him. No, you can you can fully understand Jackie, yeah, which you can't yeah. really understand what they're saying. So, so yeah. No, of course, let's not forget the first scientist guy who shows up to meet Lee Weathers. Ted Brenner, played by Michael Yare. Now, you think this is going to be romantic, don't you? Something. But it doesn't. never turns out to be. Well, he ends up carrying her bags. That's a bit on the nose, isn't it? The, the first scientist girl she meets happens to be the black guy and happens to carry, carry the white woman's bags into the place. Right. Okay, really? so I think we need to get to the bit. Right. Okay, so they've got, they've got this, uh, this AI subject behind L9. a glass kind of... Anthony Hopkins wall under yes. control okay and nobody's going in there Amy's really desperate to get her back out to the forest to you know to cure her and make her feel nice again uh, she's having her adolescent temper tantrums and trying to control emotions that she can't control and then Alan Shapiro turns up and says look I'm going in there to speak to her directly and they're like no you can't do he's like well I am doing I'm overriding and he goes in and speaks to her and gets killed right now at this point I get confused Richard does she escape out the glass container or do they go in or somebody gets killed all the scientists turn rogue for some reason like particularly the black guy <laughs> like he's like no you're not going to take a kind of thing i just at that part i just do not know what's going on that five minutes i haven't got a clue after the after the investigating guy dr alan shapiro gets killed i just don't know what happens richard you need to explain to me wow paul you have you've whistled through this film i understand why but I think you skipped over a lot of the sort of developmental stuff of this film. Like what? Um, but that, that's because nothing really happens. Nothing like happens. Like she meets all these scientists. She tries to, and there's this idea that like they're all suspicious of her. Yeah. Uh, and all the scientists have got sort of um, a burgeoning relationship with this young woman that is this robot L nine played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Yes. They they treat it more like a daughter. Or a member of the family, 
don't know, experiment. And she thinks the Chinese boss's mother, doesn't she? That's right. Because I think she is, uh, somehow. <laughs> uh, and then, but Lee Weathers is quite clear. She states at one point that she has no rights whatsoever. Like, she's property of the company. She's a machine. It's an it, though, yeah. Even though she's not a machine, she's a human being, despite that. Yes. Uh, maybe they couldn't afford the CGI that they had in Ex Machina. I don't know. Maybe that didn't occur to them. They just decided a, a normal person would look better, but I don't know. Dr. Amy is particularly close Yes. to Morgan, the L9 robot thing. And she's been spending a lot of time with her. That's where they get the flashback to the them being out in the forest and snapping the deer's neck or whatever. Yeah, the as you say, Dr. Shapiro arrives. He says it's a fourth wave AI. By this time, because she stabbed Dr. Kate in the eye with a, with a knife, they have locked her in her cell, I'm going to describe it as. As you say, it's a glass-fronted dwelling. I've got to say it's bigger than my apartment, which is also glass-fronted, by the way. So I feel a little, I don't know, what's the word? (laughs) (laughs) Attacked, in a sense. (laughs) Uh, But very similar decor, you know, all that brushed concrete. I quite like that architecture that's going on here. It's not clear, really, why they're bothering with the experiment. You know, what is so good about Morgan? They say something about emerging precognition. What does that mean? Emerging precognition. It's like... Yeah, how do they know? Yeah. And and then during that interview that you're describing, Dr. Shapiro, where he riles up Morgan, yeah. he starts off by saying there are no right or wrong answers here, which is like textbook, I see there are definitely wrong answers here. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I think we're supposed to think that she's outthinking him and that she gives, she's starting to give answers that she may not feel herself, but she wants, she knows he wants to hear. But this isn't really, it's not really extrapolated to, 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 to an extent where the, the watcher, you know, the audience can feel the, the chess game that would be going on if that was happening. Does that make sense, I mean, Richard? It's the like, very next line, right? The very next line... She, he just starts goading her at some point, yeah. Well, she explains that she's feeling sad. Yeah. And he says something like, sad is a correct response. He's just started saying there's no right or wrong answers here. <laughs> sad is the correct response. What would be an incorrect response, Morgan? <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. So it's supposed to be mind games, but it's just not because the dialogue hasn't been hasn't been whittled down to, to, to that level that it needs to be. So I do you experience? Was... Do you consider yourself human? No, something new says Morgan. And then he says, "Do you know what you apples experience... and oranges? We are apples, and you are oranges. Yes, I'm an orange." <laughs> <laughs> and he says, at some point, he says, "You experience love," and this is again, it's a very common trope in the kind of lazy writers who have this thing about science, perhaps because they could never do it at school, is they think love is like the highest pinnacle of human expression rather than just an emotion born of, you know, particular sexual, like, like, uh, attraction and desire and attachment, you know. As as if it would be impossible or unthinkable for a a machine to be programmed to exhibit all the sensations of love, you know. It's, It's just unthinkable to these people for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why they lack that imagination that you could possibly program a machine to experience that it seems obvious to me um, <laughs> now M- Morgan does seem to know that Ben Shapiro is the father to a 13 year old girl so she does as you say she kind of psychs she, him out yeah like she's she's displaying her weird chest like moves here but we have no reason we have no idea how it happened or no reason to believe that it could have happened in you know in the reality of that world. So it's kind of pointless that they do all that. And then so, he goes... Really her, clunky. He goes by asking her, what if I recommended you, you be terminated? And he does that. He asks her that until she bites him in the throat. But wait a minute. Before that, he says, could I be your best friend? If I took you to the lake, could I be your best friend? You know, And he does that <laughs> for about eight or ten lines. Now, it's pretty poor dialogue, but what, what I would say is I thought this was the best acting of okay. really poor dialogue that I've seen in quite a long time, actually. I thought he took it quite a long way to the extent that he kind of felt that he was menacing, you know. 
There's so much poor dialogue in this film. Yeah. The, the scientists in particular are really poorly um, done done by in this entire film. Just you know, there's no there's no sense in which the writer understood how science might work. Would you have some people working at PCs? <laughs> the, like that kind of shit might fly. It's sort of excusable if you're dealing with some kind of crazed lone genius, you know working away on their own, you know, because yeah. they're weird and because scientists won't work with them because they're unethical or wrong or weird. But not an entire team of them all working together, you know, rubbing along and doing this crappy stuff. That It doesn't fly and it's not believable. She goes crazy. They try to tranquilize her. Uh, Morgan escapes and Lee Weathers pursues her. Oh, so then, so then Morgan is on the outside... And somebody's That's on the right. inside of the glass. Did that happen for a moment? Yeah, well, the no. scientists decide to save her. And at some point, they tranquilise Lee Weathers, don't they? And put her on the inside of the glass. They put her in the ah, cell, yeah. This is where the scientists go rogue, okay? So they all decide to save Morgan. And, like, yeah, they're like, just stay away from her kind of stuff. And they've got but Morgan I- strapped down to a gurney, a bed in, in their medical facility. Morgan wakes up. She kills Darren. She kills Ted, and then Vinette. Um, she see, leaves this is Amy. Point here, this is the point here. I didn't really understand why we had to see her kill so many people, and with just so little artifice in the plot. Like, there's nothing, nothing particularly cunning she does to kill them. She just kills them. Yeah, yeah. That's we right. don't see a demonstration yeah. of her brilliant mind, do we? She just kills them, or any real reason why she might. It's alluded to later, and you mentioned it as well as I think, where they're talking about her emotional, whatever that word was you used, a more cognitive emotion. So whatever I think means. the idea is that they've <laughs> they're building these killer robot people, but this one they've decided to leave more emotion in, like the emotions turned up to eleven I or something. See. So she just snaps and goes crazy, but they don't earn any of that. None of that is earned. All you see is a sullen, sulky teenager. Who suddenly snaps and stabs someone in the eye, and then later? So it's a bit like Avril Lavigne with a black belt in karate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, God, so I hate Avril Lavigne. I can't. Stand. No offense to the modern day Avril Lavigne, but you know, oh God, those songs. I can't stand them. If there's any nails on whiteboards, blackboard songs, it's Avril Lavigne for me. It just oh, infuriates me. Anyway. So we're not putting any of that on the Spotify playlist. Please don't, no. no. I'll cry. I'll literally cry. Morgan kills Kathy after all those other guys. <sighs> Lee, Lee Weathers, escapes the cell by climbing up the chimney. You'd think probably Morgan, especially being precognitive, all could have highly AI-related this action, isn't it? You know? <laughs> like, we really needed this wrapped in AI, didn't we, for this, for this movie and this story to occur? No, we didn't at all. So Now, the cook guy, who had tried to kiss Kate at one point, or kiss, rather, she's not called Kate, she's called Lee. Uh, at this point, he's gone for the hunting rifle. He seems to decide the best way to load the hunting rifle is to pitch all the rounds out onto the linoleum and try to pick them up. Uh, she doesn't kill Ziegler because he's hung himself. Uh, and uh, Again, another kind of scientist has, you know, remorse for what has he done kind of situation. In fact, I think he said, I think he uses the the line, what what have they done at some point. I don't know why. I don't know what his realisation was all about. Um, she does get to Dr. Cheng and kills her. I mean, Dr. Cheng was like, she was kind of like saying, well, I'm going to terminate you, and by the way, I'm not your mother. So, I mean, at that point, you're going to get killed if you say those things to, to a rogue <laughs> yeah. robot, aren't you? <laughs> So yeah, it didn't exactly really have a sense of, of self-preservation. Exactly the kind of thing a very intelligent scientist would say at that point, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, just like stick it to Wouldn't them. just leave that for a couple of weeks later when help arrived. No, just mention it now when it's me versus crazed teenage robot. Yeah, exactly. It's like having an adolescent in the house and you having a, a slanging match and slamming the doors, isn't it? This is It's not going to de-escalate the situation, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> now Morgan Ever. keeps Amy alive though because she likes her and she takes her to a lake stands on a wooden dock uh, meanwhile 
Lee is chasing in a car, but I think they hit a tree. Not quite sure what what the hell that was about. Um, really? Lee grabs a hunting rifle, chases after her, and during the fight, Lee gets thrown onto the, a spiky branch. Looks very similar to the one the deer was impaled on. Ah, symmetry. A return. I, I think we're supposed we're given to understand that maybe Lee is dead at this point. Morgan tries to escape with Amy, but Amy sort of flinches from her. She's scared of her. Um, and then Lee, who is still alive, jumps out and drowns Morgan. And then she emerges from the water, having drowned Morgan. She shoots Amy, big shock. I like that. And, I think and she then she shoots, shoots the boyfriend. The, the, well, the guy tried to kiss her. Yeah. The cook, yeah. Brian and Cox then, appears at the end. And of but, course... Wait. Yeah? You gonna, if you hadn't seen the twist, you wouldn't you have seen the seen twist. The twist. <laughs> it was uh, it, it was unmissable. I think I called it the twist maybe twenty five minutes. <laughs> Me in. too. Yeah, it was instantaneous, really. Wasn't it? <sighs> and it just wasn't a surprise at all. So the at twist, all. of course, is that Lee is also a robot, a previous model. I think an L four. They say something about L four. So. Yeah. Uh, probably less emotional than Morgan. And was like. maybe sent in once his problem occurred. Knowing that whoever, whichever robot came out would have been the better robot for, for 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 the for the corporation. Yeah, like you say, this telegraphed itself. This twist in the first few minutes of the film. Was, horrific, horrific. Oh, she's a robot, obviously. Yeah, it was just. I mean, it's it's because <sighs> it's because she was made to look androgynous, right? They made her look. Yes, you know the kind of. Androgynous hair, haircut. The name is androgynous. You know, Lee, like Morgan, in a way, I think is is also an androgynous name. The whole, yeah, the whole thing smacked of her, and she was very buttoned down and very controlled, and her acting was, you know, it just telegraphed it all. Maybe that's good acting, but it, it, you know, what, what can you do? It's a shit plot. <laughs> oh, <dear>. So, <laughs> so let's let's score this piece of shit. Let's, uh, Paul. Now, you loved Paul Giamatti's acting, didn't you? Well, I think he, I think he tried to reclaim... He went balls some, out for it, no question. He tried to reclaim some sunken ground, didn't succeed, but, you know, somehow came out better and stronger for doing it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't think the acting itself was particularly bad. But as we as we say again and again, just like you can't you can't polish shit, you know, you can't <laughs> rake piss uphill, and you can't act a really poor script with terrible dialogue. You know, it's just it's just something you can't do. Yeah, so, they said the lines that they were given, but the lines they were given were, were crap. So acting, I'm going to have to score it for those reasons. It can't go any higher than a seven. It's going to have to be a six point five. Yeah, I will give it. Well, let's say that Kate Mara did express herself as a robot early on, so I'll give it a seven. A generous seven. Spoiling the whole film, but great acting. Well done. <laughs> I mean, she could have just turned to the camera and said, I'll be back while taking her shades off. Can she that? <laughs> all right. Okay, what done. about plot and all that all that nonsense and dialogue? If we're gonna Fuck go me. The plot... What does it mean? <laughs> It's not. It's not robots. It's not AI. They're not programming anything. The scientists are bad. The story is trite and obvious. Well, I mean, it's a it's a two or a three, isn't it? Wow, which one's it going to be, Richard? Two or three? I'll have to go three because it's coherent. Ooh. It hangs together. I mean, there is a there is a through line there. You can understand it. I mean, it literally is cabin in the woods for the weekend. Escape the killer. That's all it is, yeah. They've put it in this AI skin. None of the AI is necessary for the story to proceed. That's no. annoying. Yeah. But what's even more annoying is the torturous, torturously bad dialogue. The fact the twist is visible right before people get out of the car and arrive. Uh, and, yeah, it's unforgivable, really. There's just no reason for any of the action to involve AI. Any of it. And they could have brought it in, you know. They could have brought in her ridiculous ability to outthink people or outmaneuver people when she's going around murdering people, but they didn't do it. It's just lazy. For that reason, it has to be a two and no more. The comparisons with 
ex machina are extremely damaging. Yeah. You know, that's a really thoughtful piece, and it really plays with the kind of AI in the box idea. We're here. The AI in the box just cr- climbs up a chimney. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. X back in a copy watch, anybody? Copy watch? X back in a copy watch? <laughs> yeah. So so there you go. I, I, I think we have to score a science, and I guess you've got lots of vituperiv vitriol to, 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 to get out of your system here, Richard. It's just like people who have heard about science writing, trying to write science and scientists, isn't it? It's so bad, it's it's execrable. So, it is Radio Shack science, yeah, yeah. I'll give it a two. Um, why a two? Well, I mean, they use the word nanites, roughly correct. And we got some computer graphics showing the little nanite going into a cell. That was a good thing, yeah. changing the DNA because they say synthetic DNA. To that extent, we might surmise that every cell is changed to the extent. But no, I'm not accepting the fact it's a robot. So. So yeah, we we got that bit, and um, we got some people sitting at computers and tapping on keyboards, and we also got some nonsense about a more cognitive, emotional, a more cognitive emote in the new, in the new uh, line of robots. Just well, a crock of shite, really. But I'm going to score it a three. Right? Have we run out of categories? I mean, can we do action, well? We've got special action effects? and that kind of crap. Yeah, special effects depending on which one you want to choose. Uh, you know. If you're positing some kind of superhuman thing, why not give them some kind of special flashy powers? Yeah. Rather than just sudden teenager power. <laughs> <laughs> the ability to become suddenly very violent for little or no reason, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I well, mean, there's I some guess fight sequences, but, you know. I guess we're doing action, aren't we, here? Yeah. There's no special effects, are there? Yeah. It was it it was tawdry. I mean, we had a you know chasing the forest scene that just wasn't exciting. No, Lee shot her at a distance, and then she the the girl was wounded but disappeared and came from round behind. Well, there's a surprise. Uh, <laughs> and then they fell down. They rolled down. They rolled down into some little little uh, little I don't know little little covering in the forest or whatever. And then one of them succeeded to push the other in the water. I mean, what what on earth is all that about? Every turn predictable, yeah. Uh, for action, I mean, there are some fights, but they're not particularly they special. So let's give it a four. Uh, the timing, the cadence of it all doesn't really work. Uh, the energy is sudden and and sudden and uncontrolled, and then we go back into twenty minutes of quite slowly directed natter about nothing in particular. So the action doesn't really fit with the feel of the movie anyway. Uh, so I'm going to score it a 4. In total, I'm going to score it a 3.5 out of 10. This is a definite do-not-waste-your-time watching. <laughs> yeah, I'll give it a 3. Yeah. Oh, wow, God. Even it's an insult, it's an insult, isn't it? And it's a real shame that um, the director involved such great talent in this project, uh, especially after The Martian, which was decent. Shame, right? This was after The Martian. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, we've got to do better next week, surely. We do. What do you suggest? We've well, got a list I suggest we stay. We have got a list. So uh, we're not going to decide on air like we normally do, uh, or we used to do. We've got a list. We kind of decide this. We just have to tell people what we're watching, don't we? And it's a fabulous, fabulous piece of sci-fi. Let's stay with sci-fi for a while. Richard, do you want to introduce it? Sorry. This is definitely a Netflix exclusive this time, isn't it? I'm not oh, going to yes, be gainsay yes. this yeah. time. It's true. This is The Door into Summer. The Door into Summer. A Japanese time travel science fiction film. Not The Monkey's Song by the same name. Oh, really? Is that something else for the Spotify list? It depends how much you like The Monkey's back catalogue. I do like The Monkey's. Uh, but, I mean, if you've got to do 60s psychedelia, I mean... The banana bunch the are better. Yeah, they're not the best example. Uh, however, it was inspired by the novel that this film is based on. So I don't know who wrote that, which of the monkeys, but they've been they've been reading this novel and they wrote a song about it. Wow, I didn't yeah. know that. We'll find out about it next week, I guess. Another musical claim to fame, another link. Okay, until the next time. Do sleep safely. Good night. Ciao for now. 
Thank you.